You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. And I want to specify, it is the sin that is the problem, not the sinner. Every single person is loved by God, and God forgives all of us of our depravity. But we have to turn away from our sins and turn toward him. And it seems the panel opposite me has forgotten to separate the sin from the sinner. One can denounce sin while still welcoming the sinner. So as I wrap up, my message to the proposing side is do not lead us astray. Do not lead people astray. Do not be the wolves in sheep's clothing. Do not be the false teachers that the Bible warns us about. Remember your obligation to defend the faith. Stop teaching about diversity, inclusion, and equality and get back to teaching about redemption and salvation. This is spiritual neglect. Help people by telling them the truth. Be kind to people by supporting them through those struggles and reminding them that Christ suffers with them. And be compassionate by leading them to Christ when the world tries to lead them away from him. The church is imploding and the faithful masses have stopped turning up on Sundays and we are seeing the most rapid decline of Christianity in this country that we may have ever seen. Do not accelerate it with heresy. You do not have the authority to bless sin. When I hear the Bishop of London on record saying these new prayers will mean priests can bless same-sex relationships, some of which may be sexual in nature, I hear the devil at work. Bishops are promoting the idea of sacramental sodomy. Let them be anathema. Repent. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 561 of this podcast. Today is Friday, February 17th, 2023, and that was a little clip from the Reverend Calvin Robinson. You can tell by his accent that he is not from the U.S. He is from Great Britain. He is from the Church of England, or he's a clergy member in the Church of England, and there he was speaking recently at the Oxford Union Debate Society in Oxford, England, and talking about how Christianity should not allow gay marriage. The Church of England should not endorse and affirm and bless gay marriage, and Of course, as always, I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. You can go and check out the full video. That was a small clip that was part of a tweet that was embedded in the write-up from John Knox, not his real name, I'm sure, at notthebee.com. You do not have the authority to bless sin, he says. And that's true. That That is quite correct. We do not have the authority to bless sin, or if we are trying to, then we are anathema. We are outcast. Jesus will say to us on judgment day, depart from me. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. 
and will be cast out into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that will be the end of it. So let it not be said of us that we are workers of lawlessness and that we say, Lord, Lord, but our hearts are far from him. Let it not be said of us. Let it be instead the case that we pursue the other option, the other statement for those who claim Christ, that we would hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into your place of rest. That is what we should be concerned about, first and foremost. Not what the world would say about us or to us, not what the world would do to us if we refuse to affirm these things. But a word or two about Oxford Union. This is the second, at least, video I've seen come from Oxford Union. And the first was from a comedian, Russian-born. His parents and himself emigrated to the UK to, I believe, avoid the fallout of communism. But in any event, he recently spoke at the Oxford Union on wokeness and what needs to be done about the calls for uh, essentially locking ourselves into poverty in the developed world, even as the developing world is going to continue on trying to pursue greater wealth, greater prosperity, greater security, healthier outcomes for their children. They're going to use fossil fuels to generate electricity, to fuel their transportation system, et cetera, et cetera. You're not going to be able to convince them to keep on being poor, he says in his entry into the debate. And neither should we be asking middle and low income Westerners in Great Britain, for instance, in the UK, for instance, to consign themselves to being poor because this is a fool's errand. If we stopped all economic activity in the UK, it would at most reduce global carbon emissions by 2%. That's not enough to change anything. And how much less if you just curb significantly, but don't stop all economic activity in the UK? How much less are you going to actually make a difference in the grand scheme of things? The developing nations are still going to keep on producing. They're going to still keep on trying to advance their interests. And what it really boils down to in the end, as Constantin Kizan says, is fathers in particular, mothers and fathers in particular, wanting good outcomes and good lives for their children. They're going to work hard to provide those good lives and to ensure that their children, one, survive infancy, two, survive childhood, three, receive a good education, four, when they grow up, are able to get good jobs so that they can provide for themselves, so that they can have homes that are decent, so that they can have a good supply of food, so that they can have clothing that is sufficient and of quality materials, et cetera, et cetera. But that is to say, Oxford Union sponsoring the debate in the one case with Konstantin Kizan present and being able to articulate his position at some length, greater length than what is all too common for 
mass media, corporate media interviews, and panel discussions where everyone is talking over everyone else, and it's a very stressful thing. And the main conclusion, the main takeaway that most people derive is that we just shouldn't talk about these things. We shouldn't think about these things. It's stressful. It's chaotic. Nobody convinces anybody else. We should reject that portrayal of debate and critical thinking, which is a bastardization of debate. It's not actually debate, what is being presented to us in the corporate media. This that we're seeing from Oxford Union is what a debate should be, or it's closer to. I would still like to see us get back to the Lincoln-Douglas-style debates from an earlier epoch in American history, debates where the opening remark may be an hour and the response may be measured in hours as well. And the two debaters go back and forth, having an hour at a time to re- reply to reply in substance, to articulate and build up to their conclusions, to present evidence, to present reasoned arguments, and to persuade. What does it mean when we won't even allow for those kinds of substantive debates, what it really means is we've given up on persuasion. We have given up on developing and maintaining attention spans sufficient to the challenges of our day. And this all brings me to not just an affirmation of Calvin Robinson's remarks. There are certain things that I might disagree with in the particulars from his longer speech, not just that short one minute, 40 some second clip that I played at the beginning of this episode. But there are some things that I might ask for a little bit of modification on, or I might add a little bit to, or I might change the wording of here and there. But that's just it. If we want to have the opportunity to offer up our own views and to be heard, we have to practice hearing one another. We have to insist on free discourse, free speech. And more to the point too, we have to agree on some ground rules that will govern the debate that we should be having. We we must have debate. We must have debate on a broad range of issues. But if we will have debate, there must be some ground rules. There must be some rules of etiquette and manners and civility and respect, and yes, even gentleness. I think you can credit Western civilization as informed by the Judeo-Christian ethic, particularly the Christian New Testament and what Christians are called to, what we are commanded to, with free speech as we know it. I don't see other worldviews apart from the influence of Christianity, apart from the influence of God's word in the New Testament in particular, I don't see other influences bringing about free society in the West the way that we know it. And downstream of free discourse, free association, the ability to think critically about various ideas, various proposals put forth, downstream of that is the prosperity that other civilizations, other non-Western peoples and ideologies are hostile to. And we have to recognize that part of the reason for free speech being curtailed and various manipulative 
tricks being played on us with regards to what otherwise would be a continuation of the tradition of the West, these things are not by accident. Free speech is being curtailed because free speech would see the defeat of the communistic measures and the so inclusive that we stand for nothing worldview. And that's why the second who would come and examine these ideas and proposals, the first one to state his case seems correct until another comes and examines him. That's why the second who would come to examine him is being so often silenced, bullied, prevented from speaking in the first place, or if he does speak, used as a example, punished as publicly as possible, threatened as publicly as possible to create a chilling effect for everybody else. We must not give in to that. We have been, but we must not anymore. We have to stop it. Regardless whether we agree in the particulars of debate, we have to get back to being able to reason with one another if we're going to figure these things out in a way that is not disastrous. And yet we see the evidence all around us day in and day out of what happens when we are not reasoning with one another. Increased polarization, increased contention, increased hostility, increased disorder and chaos, and yet reasoned debate, as chaotic as it might seem in many of our minds, because we associate it with what we see, the kind of caricature that we see so often in news media or in social media, it is actually not chaos. It would bring order to put even the assertion front and center that we must have debate to put ground rules based on solid biblical principles into effect again publicly, that would do a great deal of good. And that's why, actually, just this morning, I shared with some friends of mine, some brothers of mine from Summit View Community Church, a link to the YouTube channel for Oxford Union, along with an ask of when do we think we will be able to get together again. We were tentatively planning on next Saturday to shore up some details as to when we want to have our first debates here in Greeley Evans. But that is to say, we're going to, Lord willing, create and start up and found or are in the process of founding a debate society here locally. And why this is important is because this is our heritage. As Christians, as inheritors of Western civilization, as inheritors of church history, as inheritors of Christian civilization, this is our duty. We have a responsibility not to neglect these things, not to let them fade away into the mist, but to embrace them, to pick them up like a baton that has been dropped and left sitting in the dirt, we must pick these things up and carry them forward for our sake and for the sake of future generations. And so I pray that the Lord will bless our efforts in this regard. Again, as I said, regardless of whether we all agree, which in order to have a debate, you have to at least make a good show of not agreeing. (laughs) Regardless of whether we all agree in the particulars, we must, we must, we must be convinced that reasoning with one another in a respectful and edifying way is 
necessary. It is essential. We cannot sustain what has been built up, what has been handed down, what has been passed down to us. We cannot sustain it without free public discourse and critical thinking and reasoned debate. So a quick note, by the way, as I am looking at the Oxford Union, which you can find out more about at www.oxford-union.org, or I will include a link in the podcast episode description for this episode to their YouTube channel where you can check out all kinds of videos and clips that they've got up and about and available. But I note that their emblem, their seal, includes a certain Latin phrase. And I don't speak Latin. I don't know Latin in any kind of a expert way, certainly nothing to brag about or write home about. But I do have Google and I can look it up. I can look up (laughs) a translation. And so I did. And the Latin phrase that's on the emblem for the Oxford Union Debate Society is, if I am pronouncing this right, Domi mina novus tio mia, which I'm probably not saying that correctly, but nevertheless, what I'm seeing is that the English translation is the Lord is my light. The Lord is my light. If we are in the midst of dark times right now, we could really use a light if we're going to see where we're going and not trip over things and not fall into a ditch, not fall off a cliff. If we're going to get anywhere, we need some light in here. And the Lord is my light. And so I think this is tremendous. I think it's great. Oxford Union Debate Society has been up and about for two centuries. Definitely check out their material. But more to the point, more than any particular video you would watch like this one with Calvin Robinson, Anglican clergyman, or the one with Constantin Kizin, the comedian and blogger and podcaster, check out the premise and consider it and meditate on whether this is indeed what we should be about, what we should be pursuing. Also, too, I'll say with regards to the word disobedience in Romans, for instance, disobedience is so very, very close in the Koine Greek in Romans chapter 11. It is so very, very close to the Koine Greek word for apathy, which is to say, we just don't care. And I think when you are honest in peeling back the disingenuous layers of very convenient arguments that affirm and flatter the zeitgeist the spirit of this age, when you peel those back, the pretend virtue, the virtue signaling, the hypocrisy of saying we're going to change our prayer book and all of our doctrinal statements to affirm homosexuality, to affirm transgenderism, peel back all of the pretend, what it really boils down to in the end is not caring what God has said. It is a disregard for what God has said, which translates to disobedience. And that apathy 
coupled with pretending to actually care, is satanic. It is demonic. It is not of God. It is evil. And it should not be tolerated. Let them be anathema, Reverend Calvin Robinson says. Let them be anathema. How many of us even know what anathema means? In our day, too many of us are unfamiliar with that term because the emphasis has been for the past century on ecumenicism, which is arguably the opposite of anathema. It is arguably the opposite of excommunication to say we're going to have interfaith dialogue, not just dialogue between denominations, regardless of whether they line up doctrinally within the Christian faith under the umbrella of historical orthodoxy. But ecumenicism increasingly expands outward beyond just even Christianity to encompass all religions. And this is how we get a one world government and a spirit of antichrist. It is not of God. God may allow it, but that is not the same thing as saying that God approves or that God will hold guiltless those who celebrate, affirm, or are silent in the face of this apostasy. Anathema, according to Oxford languages, here we are back to Oxford again, is a formal curse by a pope or a council of the church excommunicating a person or denouncing a doctrine. Now, that would be a very Roman Catholic translation or interpretation or application. But let's put aside popes, let's put aside councils of the Roman Catholic Church, and let's just say this is a question of authority and who has authority in our churches. Pastors, bishops, deacons. We have all kinds of terms for various leaders in the church in the United States of America. And I blame, I don't think, I blame men like Paul David Tripp for having popularized this idea of leaders in an abstract sense, to prefer leaders in an abstract sense over the biblical categories that we have, which carry with them authority. I blame Paul David Tripp and those like him for wanting to soften the authority of the church with regards to the qualifications according to God's word. That deviation, that leaving of the authority of God's word because we're uncomfortable with wielding authority as men is the setup to have us essentially laying flat on our back, completely vulnerable to a death blow. In terms of orthodoxy, in terms of our practice and doctrine, matching God's stated will, his revealed word, there's no excuse for it. There might be reasons that have to do with wanting to be appealing, wanting to be attractive to prospective truth seekers, as they would be known in the circles I used to run in years ago, in the Willow Creek vernacular, in the seeker-sensitive, seeker-friendly trends of 15 years ago or so, we would say we want to soften 
the hard edges to make Christian faith more palatable, more appealing, more approachable, less threatening, less offensive. And at a certain point, you have to do some very real, very significant soul searching about why we think these people are truth seekers when the actual truth would drive them from the churches. Don't call them truth seekers if the actual truth being proclaimed and acted on would offend them to the point of having nothing more to do with us. We're terrified of them excommunicating us, but that is to say we don't regard in too many cases the church as having the authority to excommunicate those who are apostate. But that is to say we relinquish what God has commanded us to hold fast to. And in so doing, we leave ourselves vulnerable to every kind of evil, every kind of anxiety, every kind of perversion, every kind of wickedness. And that's lawlessness, friends. That is how the Church of England got to where it is right now, where they are changing their prayers to affirm and celebrate an androgynous God and androgynous clergy and androgynous laypeople in an antichrist expression of faith. Because it's not first and foremost centuries of generations of Christians before us that we're rejecting. It's Christ himself. It's God himself whose authority all of those hundreds of years and thousands of years of Christians before us were believing when they taught what they did and they said what they did regarding homosexuality, regarding marriage, regarding the family. It is not, first and foremost, man's authority that is being rejected when we throw all of that out in the interest of softening the hard edges. It's first and foremost God's authority that we're throwing out. And it will not do to say, but we are not perfect either. What? Are you getting more perfect by saying that much? Are we getting more perfect to just change the standard? You don't have the authority to bless sin, as Calvin Robinson is saying. He's right. He's right. We don't. We don't have that authority. If we would say that we do, we are lying and the truth is not in us. If we would try to get that authority, we can only take it from God, which again is satanic. It's demonic. That's us trying to usurp God's authority, and it will not end well for us. Now, I want to share with you for your consideration a quote that I came across here recently as I was trying to find an anecdote that I vaguely remember from my readings over the past year, but I don't remember which book. And this is part of the challenge, I suppose, with the way that I've been reading books. I read dozens last year. I believe the final count was 62. But I read all these books, and I can't remember who it was or what the precise wording was of a certain philosopher, Greek or Roman I believe it was in Plutarch, but I've also recently read Polybius's The Histories. So it might have been from that. But the story was of a certain philosopher or politician or statesman or famous figure from Greek and Roman times 
who was told by his friends that his enemies were going around town and demeaning him, and he should probably respond. And his response was, but I'm not demeaned, or something to that effect. Something along those lines. But that is to say, I was trying to find this story and instead <laughs> finding this story, which I will keep on looking for, because now it's really bothering me and it's the principle of the thing. Instead of finding the story, I actually found a quote, which some attribute to Diogenes the Cynic. Keeping quiet is how you learn to listen. Listening is how you learn to speak. Speaking is how you learn to be silent. The source which I stumbled across, which said this may or may not have been Diogenes, said that even if it wasn't said by Diogenes, it accurately sums up a lot of what he did say that we know he said. So even there, there's still a value in it, even if he didn't say it per se. And in any event, any English translation would not be precisely what he said with all of its connotations. You can't just do 30 minutes of Google searching to fully appreciate what the broader context was of Diogenes saying what he did say, that we know he did say, translated into English. But nevertheless, let's just take this idea that keeping quiet is how you learn to listen. Listening is how you learn to speak. Speaking is how you learn to be silent. There is a cynical quality to the last of that three-part process. There's a cynical quality to admitting that when you speak, you learn to be silent. As Caitlin Bergman, our friend, quoted after seeing this post I made, I shared the quote to Facebook. She said that it reminded her of Proverbs 17:28, even fools are thought wise if they keep silent and discerning if they hold their tongues. And that is just the right word, le mot juste, as the French would say. That is exactly the proverb that came to my mind as well. Even fools are thought wise if they keep silent. But that is to say, what is the point, right? What is, <laughs> what is the point of keeping silent? It might be, in our day, to avoid being punished, to avoid being canceled. And when we say canceled, what we really mean is people hating you publicly driving you from the public square, driving you from political office, driving you from teaching positions in the schools and universities, driving you from governing boards, driving you from polite society, even possibly boycotting your business or your podcast or your blog, boycotting sponsors who support you. This is a culture war and we didn't start it, but by golly, we do need to fight it because it's an existential crisis. I dare say the reason we need to fight it is not to win the culture, but to save our souls. Because how you actually fight it, the only way to fight it, based on its fundamentals, is to agree with God, is to trust in God, is to command your soul to God. That's the only way to fight it. And the point is not to win the culture per se, but the point is the salvation of our souls. And if we would love one another as we love ourselves, then yes, to persuade one another to turn and be saved. Why would we keep silent? Because we learn from being abused that 
pursuing knowledge and wisdom, particularly if it is inconvenient to the status quo or those who benefit from the status quo, will be rewarded with abuse. You will be abused. You will be abused verbally. And when that doesn't work, if that's not enough to shut you up, you will be abused physically up to and including being killed. That's the frank reality. But this is why Jesus says, do not fear a man who can only kill the body and then has no more that he can do to you. Fear God who can both kill the body and cast the soul into hell. If that's an alien notion to us, it just goes to show how far adrift, how far off course our expression of Christian faith and life has gotten. Because to previous generations of Christians down through the centuries, that would not have sounded alien. That would not have been a foreign concept. It needs to not be for us either. Now, on the other hand, or perhaps the same hand, I'm going to play a clip for you from a certain Dr. John D. Street at the Master's Seminary. I have some context. I have some further explaining to do after I play this clip, but I'll play the clip first, and then you'll know why you should be interested in the context. Here is John D. Street from Lecture 8, Advanced Biblical Counseling, a video that was uploaded 10 years ago to YouTube. Take a listen. All right, counseling the the depressed. This is a particular... A problem that you will find frequently reoccurring in your ministry. You'll have both men and women and children who struggle with depression. And I know you're probably sitting there and you're thinking, well, how could that possibly be true in my congregation since I deliver such tremendous sermons? Well, if you are delivering such tremendous sermons, If they're really the right kind of sermons, they themselves will make them depressed (laughs) because there'll be conviction there. Um. And cut. (laughs) There will be conviction there and that will lead to depression. And therefore, if I can translate here, if you don't have people coming to you as a pastor depressed by your sermons, by your pastoring, then you're doing it wrong. So in other words, you're going to hear from John Street how to deal with, how to cancel, how how to counsel, how to, if I may, put up with, tolerate depressed people. You're going to hear from John Street how to deal with the depressed people who are depressed because your sermons are depressing. And if you're not hearing from depressed people about how to deal with their depression caused by your sermons, well, then they're probably not good sermons. And they're probably not the kind that you should be preaching. You should be preaching more depressing sermons. And therefore, I mean, if that's sound, if that's correct so far... The more depressed people you have coming to you, the more you can be sure that you're preaching good quality sermons. If you have everyone depressed, then you can reasonably conclude that you are the prince of preachers. You're doing the best job possible the more people are depressed. And on the flip side, if you don't have just depressed people, if you have upset people as well, they're not just depressed, they're angry with you, they're upset with you, they're frustrated with you. 
they're saying, hey, wait a second, that's not quite correct, that's not quite true, then that's also good. You can just say that's persecution, right? I'm being persecuted for righteousness sake. Now, if I may, if I may peel back some layers here, let's take these things one at a time. Is it true that a good sermon will primarily, first and foremost, lead to conviction and depression? Is that true? Is that supposed to be the primary purpose of the sermon? Or, put it another way, should you consider a sermon to have not been a good sermon if it leads to other outcomes? Let's say, for instance, encouragement. Is it possible that much is being made of one very appropriate very appropriate and necessary element to the exclusion of all others. I think so. I think so. I think that when I consider the or else that John Street and John MacArthur and the Master's Seminary crowd, as I know them, as I have experienced them in my own family or in my extended circle, would position themselves relative many other Christian colleges, Christian universities, Christian seminaries, denominations, traditions, networks in the U.S. right now, they would point to sermons which are health and wealth, and they would say, well, we don't want to do that. We don't want to be preaching a prosperity gospel whereby we tell people like, for instance, a certain very famous and I think very crooked pastor, have your best life now or whatever it is, Joel Osteen, where we tell people, name it and claim it, and if you love Jesus, then you're going to be successful in every area of life, and if you're not, then you're doing it wrong. God wants you to be happy, first and foremost. The John Streets and the John MacArthur's would say, well, we need to not be like that, and therefore we're like this. And I would say, there's a certain sense in which you will be blessed and you will prosper. Whatever your hand takes to will be benefited by operating according to the truth, obeying God, being faithful to God. There's a sense in which that's true and entirely biblical and you can't neglect it just because some people are taking it and they're running with it. And they're, they're, cranking that to 11 and getting very wealthy off of telling people as much. Also, too, in the case of the John Streets and the John MacArthur's, if you crank it to 11, that conviction is also in the Bible and that we should be convicted of our sins. If you crank that to 11, to the exclusion of all other priorities and considerations, and you say, well, it's in the Bible, so therefore, in order to be biblical, you have to affirm my cranking this to 11, I would say that's folly if you don't know any better. And that's malicious and abusive and spiritual malpractice when you should know better. Now, I'm not an expert on John Street and I'm not an expert on John MacArthur, but I will say I'm something of an expert on family and friends of mine who have been under the teaching of these men directly. So I know people in my own family 
cousins of mine who have trained under John Street directly, and it shows. And we butt heads. I'll just say that. I'll just say that up front. We do not get on. (laughs) We are not simpatico on this because I do regard this as spiritual abuse. I regard this attitude, this way of relating, whereby you are trained, you're taught by these men that if you're not depressing people, you're doing it wrong, but then you're also going to be the one that they come to for treating their depression. And then you're going to tell them that that also, even just them being depressed is something they should repent of. This is, in my view, not just a twisting of the scriptures in a accidental way. This is a stubborn, willful, even potentially malicious and cruel and abusive way of twisting the scripture. Not only do I regard this as out of step with, out of alignment with the whole counsel of God, but for those who know better and should know better, but stubbornly refuse to be corrected, like some in my own family, to act in this way and then to suggest, if not outright stating, that anybody, any Christian who doesn't agree with it is just not biblical, they don't, re- they, they don't really love Jesus, they don't really trust God, they don't really have a high view of the sovereignty of God, is wicked. Let me say that again. I regard as wicked abusing people under your care in this way, and then when you're corrected by those who are not under you, but are Christians are in Christ, should be regarded as brothers, your your end run around accountability, around being corrected, is to suggest that we might not be brothers. We might not be Christians after all, since we don't agree with you. It's a very arrogant, egotistical, pharisaical way of reasoning, and it needs to stop because real men and women and children are harmed in this way. The testimony of God's word is harmed in this way, in the minds of those who are believers and in the minds of those who are unbelievers. I would refer you back to last summer and the very tragic, very upsetting, very unsettling, very disturbing business about J.D. Hall in Sydney, Montana, where my family moved to Greeley, Colorado from in late 2019. I know J.D. Hall personally, and I tried. I really did. I tried to correct him gently, respectfully. He wouldn't be corrected because he believes this line of reasoning from John D. Street and has been applying it or was. And he physically, according to the police reports, according to the testimony of his own church up until they removed him from the pastorate and church disciplined him out for unrepentance, he physically and verbally abused his wife and his children. He verbally abused a great many other people outside of his church, all across the U.S., outside of his local church, anybody who didn't precisely agree with him or couldn't benefit his expanding his reach. But he operated on this premise that the more people I depress, the more people I upset, the more I can know that I'm doing it right. And if I'm not depressing people, if I'm not angering them, then I'm doing it wrong. And that, if it's well-intentioned, but it's badly misguided, then it still needs a stern rebuke. But when men know better, they should know better, 
They're given an opportunity to know better. And then they abuse those who are calling them to repentance. It begins to look less and less like this is about serving God and this is about repentance of sin and this is about being correctable and this is about conviction. It begins to look more and more like this is actually just a kind of spiritual sadomasochism where we enjoy inflicting discomfort on other people, where we spiritualize hurting other people, and furthermore, we spiritualize refusing to be corrected ourselves when we hurt other people. See, this is the other side of the coin, in my view, in my experience, to everything related to what Calvin Robinson is trying to tell the Anglican Church. Even though these look like they're exact opposites, they're kind of the same thing. They're kind of the same at root unbelief and unrepentance and not just ignorance, but stubborn disbelief and apathy with regards to the whole counsel of God. To say, we're going to modify this, that, and the other verse as is convenient to us, just because you have some people doing it in the name of being more strict, more severe, more godly, putting their flesh to death, and you have other people doing it to flatter the world, to affirm sin outside of the church, to be seeker-friendly. These are two sides of the same coin, as I see it, because both alike have a very low view of the authority of God's word. Both alike make a big show of godliness and piety, but then throw all of the above out the window when they themselves are called to a more faithful expression of Christian faith from the scriptures. So I'm very concerned about this. I'm very concerned at the implications. It makes my blood boil, actually. This should bother us and it should offend us and it should make us mad. The same way that Jesus was angry with the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. The exact same way, because this is the exact same song, just a different verse. Again, not enough of us are familiar with the word anathema, and not enough of us are familiar with the tradition in church history of excommunication for those who are willfully in sin, unrepentant, stubborn, refusing to be corrected. When Paul, the apostle, writes in Corinthians about spiritual gifts, he doesn't say there is no such thing as a spiritual gift. That's ridiculous. If you think you have a spiritual gift, then you're either crazy or you're demon-possessed or you don't read your Bible or that's just your selfish, wicked heart wanting to be special, but you're not special. No. No, he doesn't write that to the church at Corinth. When they are out of order, when they need corrected, he reminds them what the whole purpose of spiritual gifts given from God, given by God to the members of the body is in the first place. What is the purpose? The good purpose. And interestingly, the good purpose of the spiritual gifts is not, first and foremost, the conviction of sin. It's not to bring you back Sunday after Sunday 
to remind you again and again and again that you are a vile, worthless worm. In fact, it's about as opposite that as you can get. To be sure, there is the conviction of sin. There is rebuke. There is correction. There is a scolding. But that is not the point. That's not an end unto itself. It's a means to the end of edifying the church, building up the church towards love and good deeds, and even the spiritual gifts themselves, which is so funny to me. It's so ironic to me that the John MacArthur crowd is so hostile to Christians who believe that the spiritual gifts are still in effect today. It's so fitting because what it might mean if other Christians have the spiritual gift of discernment, for instance, or the gift of prophecy, for instance, it might mean that they were cutting into John MacArthur's niche. Now, that's his area. That's what he does. And only the men that he signs off on should you trust in these regards. Where is that written? Where, where, where is that in my Bible that you're saying all of your positions are coming from? But what is it that Paul says to the church at Corinth? He reminds them that the body of Christ is like a physical body, and each one of us as members is like a physical body part, and that each part of our physical bodies has a different role and a different function. Even my right hand has a different function from my left hand. Even though they're both hands, I write with my right hand. And if I were holding a sword and a shield, I would hold my sword in my right hand and I would hold my shield in my left hand because my left hand is not as coordinated. I am right-handed. Some of us have better eyesight in one eye than the other, even if we have two functioning eyes. Some of us have bad hearing in one ear, but we have just fine hearing in the other because we had a loud noise once upon a time that affected one ear more than the other, damaged one ear more than the other. The different members of the body have different gifts from God. If you object to the members of the body having gifts, take it up with God. Don't play God and tell the members of the body, oh, there's nothing special about you. All the while basking in the warm glow of the adoration of those who make their decisions, where they're going to live, where they're going to move to, what jobs they're going to take based off of how close they'll be to a church and a pastor that you approve of. It's not just John MacArthur who is special, friends. And somebody will say, oh, how dare you say an unkind word about John MacArthur? No, no. First and foremost, my unkind words are for those who are abusive and they believe they have a free hand because they operate under the umbrella of John MacArthur's reputation. The cult of personality surrounding John MacArthur is an ungodly thing, and it is a bad influence on the church in America in the most conservative corners. Can it be a good thing that he takes a stand here, he preaches that, he articulates this other thing? Yes. Can it also be true at the same time that it's a very, very dangerous thing to start regarding him as a pope for all intents and purposes? Yes. Can it be a very dangerous thing if we start regarding him as the only one capable of saying true things? Or we start supposing that he's infallible, that everything he says is correct, everything he does is quite good? 
and couldn't possibly be any better? Is that a dangerous thing? Yes, it is. Because Paul also talks about in the New Testament, those who say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Jesus. And he says, it's carnal. It's fleshly. That you should repent of, actually. Who are these men? He's even listed among them. He's like, who am I? Who is Paul? Just a servant through whom you believed. God used me to help you to come to a point of belief. The object of your faith is not Paul, first and foremost. The only reason we take Paul seriously is because Jesus is the object of our faith. God, the Father, has worked. But how will it be if we get that reversed and we say, well, God only matters to me because Paul Paul tells me that God should matter to me. If we get that reversed, then we are susceptible. We are very vulnerable to every kind of abuse and deception, manipulation, error, sin. And just because it's dressed up in a lot of pious language, it's just like with the Church of England. The Church of England can change their prayers and their doctrinal statement and who they ordain and who they defrock based on affirming homosexuality, based on affirming transgenderism. It doesn't mean they're right. Changing your church website to articulate this or that is not enough. Sending out updated and revised prayer books is not enough. It's not. Because the authority has to come from God's word first and foremost. We need to become reacquainted with the true meaning of sola scriptura, which is not that only scripture is an authority or a reliable guide, but only scripture is an infallible guide and authority in our lives as Christians. Infallible meaning incapable of making mistakes or being wrong. The Anglican church is not infallible. God's word is infallible. John MacArthur and John Street and the Master's Seminary, not infallible. Only God's word is infallible. Only God is infallible. And again, again and again, I say to you, my friends, this is part of the reason why we need to become reacquainted with debate and with reasoning with one another. Because even if it looks quite correct on the front end, when a very severe approach to dispensing with the body presents itself, or a very permissive and liberal and liberating approach to affirming whatever the body wants it gets presents itself, and both alike present themselves as either the truest expression of love for God or the truest expression of love for my neighbor, the first to state his case seems correct until the other comes and examines him. And again, the stakes could not possibly be higher for insisting that the second has the opportunity to come and cross-examine. The stakes could not possibly be higher. The stakes are our very souls. Now, I am not here to praise any particular person who puts himself forward, even Calvin Robinson. I don't know everything that he's said. I don't know everything that he stands for. I don't know everything that he's about. But he said some true things in that clip I played at the top of this episode, some true things that we need to reckon with and hear And we need to go back to God's word and test, like the Bereans, who were, as it says in Acts, of a more noble sort 
and searched the scriptures daily to see whether the things Paul and Barnabas were teaching them were correct. The Jews of Berea were of a more noble sort, and we would do well to imitate their example. Or what? Will we emphasize Matthew 6, 25-34, about not being anxious to the exclusion of what Jesus says about when we pray, when we give, when we fast, not doing it like the hypocrites who want to be seen by men? Will we? You know, what's interesting to me, and this doesn't get nearly enough play, but what's interesting to me is that we hear often from the John MacArthur, John Street types, I do anyway, that fear not is a command. It's not an option. It's a command. So if you're fearful, then you're disobeying God. You're sinning and you should repent because God told you to not be afraid and you're being afraid. We hear a lot from the John MacArthur, John Street kinds, my own cousins included. Check out the Bible Bashed podcast or don't actually do yourself a favor and avoid it like the plague, actually, unless he repents, but then he's going to have to rename his podcast and delete all his old content. So I don't see that happening, but I pray for him. We hear from that constituent that anxiety is not an option for the Christian. We are commanded, do not be anxious. And for the anxious person, what do they actually do with that? They start feeling anxious about feeling anxious, right? (laughs) I'm afraid that I'm fearful. (laughs) I'm anxious about my anxiety now. All the while, we've got John Street up here saying that if you're preaching sermons and people are not depressed, in a certain sense, if they're not anxious to the point of despair about their salvation, about their standing before God, then you're not doing your job. It's thuggery. It's wicked. It's abusive. You know, on the one hand, you've got the Joel Osteens who could just about get away with murder, except if it cut into their profits. And profits here, I mean P-R-O-F-I-T-S. So long as they convinced their congregation and those listening that this would make you healthier and wealthier and wiser, they could do anything. They could say anything. And sanctify all of the above by saying, well, I'm commanded to love my neighbor as I love myself. And so, of course, this is what I'm going to do. Of course, this is what I'm going to say. On the other hand, you have the most severe, like the John Streets, as it appears to me, who can treat their fellow man any old way, even when their fellow man makes a profession of Christian faith and bears fruit in keeping with repentance. They can abuse that person any way they please, and they can sanctify the whole lot of their own wicked behavior, their own bad ways, their own tearing down and destroying one another and consuming one another by saying, oh, well, we're commanded to love God, and I'm just loving God more than everybody else. No, you're not. Because if you really loved God, you wouldn't be treating people the way you're treating them. If you really loved God, you wouldn't be acting the way you are right now. This is not love for God. And don't you dare suggest that this is the standard now. You're not rightly handling the word of truth when you act in these abusive ways or when you affirm others who are. It's the other side of the coin of the flippant 
handling of the truth by those who are permissive regarding sins that we commit that are more enjoyable, more pleasurable. Just because this is pain instead of pleasure, it doesn't mean that you're not sinning. You're being very simple and foolish. And if you're wise in your own eyes, then that's worse than actually being a fool. And there's more hope for a fool than there is for that. You know, I've written extensively against spiritualizing cowardice for years, for years. I have written literally the article several years ago. Go look it up at On the Rocks, on the dot rocks, on the rocks blog, spiritualizing cowardice, the Christian bystander effect, about how there are far too many who make excuses for themselves and they make it sound very pious that they don't engage, they don't confront, they don't rebuke, they don't correct, they don't call for repentance, either inside the church or outside the church. And they say, oh, that's just what Jesus would have done, right? No, no, it's not. No, it's not. Just because you dress it up in some theological terms and sprinkle in some Bible verses over top of it, it doesn't mean that your attitude there, your outlook there is biblical. Actually, I would say, From my reading of church history, from my reading of the New Testament and the Old Testament, the engagement of Calvin Robinson at the Oxford Union is much more authentic to the historical expression of Christian faith over the last 2,000 years. Polite, concise, clear, direct, courteous, respectful, uncompromising as to the testimony we are commanded to express as Christians and live as Christians. But just as wrong as it is to spiritualize cowardice, it is equally wrong, if not even more wrong, to spiritualize abuse. We are not called to that. We are not called to affirm that. We are not called to condone that. We're not called to tolerate that as Christians within the church. No, no. Repentance starts in the church. Don't throw stones outside And also, I'm not buying it. I'm still not buying it. I wasn't buying it last year when I was getting into it with some of the people in Sydney, Montana, who were in leadership. I don't know if they still are. They shouldn't be in leadership in a church. They should go sit in the pew somewhere, maybe for decades, maybe for the rest of their lives. They should not be in leadership because they neglected their duty. We should pray for them and hope that they are restored. But I was told, you need to butt out of this, and it's wicked for you to be asking questions or talking about the situation with Jordan Hall and our church. How dare you? The local church is handling it. Nah, you're not, though. You're not. And this is heads I win, tails you lose when inside the church, you can't confront these things because you're rebuked and your church disciplined out, which is exactly what was happening at J.D. Hall's church. And... You can't correct it from outside of that local church either because you're told, no, this is a matter for the local church. No, you are a tyrant. You're a villain. You are lawless, actually. And you're a hypocrite. You're a lawless hypocrite who pretends at being the one who really understands the law best. And so you're going to explain it to everybody else. Meanwhile, you don't fear God. You know, that's that's the curious thing to me with regards to Fear and anxiety. Yes. Biblically, Old Testament, New Testament, we are told again and again and again, fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not. As we call them sometimes the heroes of the faith, 
although really Christ is the hero, the hero of the faith. Everybody else is just servants at best and imperfect servants, more accurately. But again and again, we see God telling his people, fear not, fear not, fear not. Do not be afraid. I am with you. Only be very bold and courageous, very strong and courageous. And yet we are supposed to be afraid. We are supposed to fear God. Fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not, except when you're supposed to, which is in the case of God. You're supposed to fear God, but you're not supposed to fear man. Fear God. Don't fear man. Don't be anxious for anything. But what about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? Sweating drops of blood for crying out loud as he cried out, as he prayed to the Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. If you want to call that concern, well then, there must, no, there must not be any such thing as anxiety. <laughs> you know, worry, right? Worry is a problem. And we need to not worry. But how we go about not worrying is encouragement in the right things as much as turning away from what is evil. And if we only have half of that equation because certain wolves in sheep's clothing have crept in while we weren't paying attention, if we only have half of that equation, we are in a bad way. It's so ironic to me that the people who are saying we're going to confront and rebuke depression are also admitting on the front end, we're preaching sermons and we're pastoring and we're training you to preach sermons and pastor in such a way as to actually make people depressed. That's sadistic. That's cruel. That's abusive. You set people up for failure, and then you hurt them when they fail. That's wicked. You should repent of that. And people shouldn't listen to that. They shouldn't fear you, John Street. They shouldn't fear you, John MacArthur. They should fear God. I'm by no means an expert on everything going on at John MacArthur's church or John MacArthur's college or university or seminary. But by golly, nothing has been more upsetting to me in the past year than my own cousin who sat under John Street, who was trained personally by John Street. And as far as I know, is <clears throat> John MacArthur approved and his choosing to join Protestia after all of the business with J.D. Hall. And I talked with him privately, at length. I talked with him and I explained as patiently, as clearly as I possibly could, the mountain of evidence of abuse. And he played a very dishonest game with me. He acted as though what I said sounded like it could be credible, maybe possibly. Meanwhile, every chance he could, he would sidestep, dodge, change the subject, open up a new can of worms over here, ask me odd, strange questions to try and catch me off balance. And at the end of it, I completely lost patience. And I told him flat out, like I'll tell you right now, he's a hypocrite. He's a Pharisee. I am gravely concerned for those who would go to him for counseling and for those who sit under his pastoring. I'm gravely concerned for their spiritual, mental, and emotional health. 
Jordan Hall did a very wicked thing, a very harmful thing to the testimony of the gospel, the Christian message, by his conduct and by his handling of the truth for years and years and years. When it was brought to light, the attitude was, in the interest of protecting his platform to preach because he's an excellent preacher, and that's what's most important, in the interest of protecting his platform to preach, we are going to try and overlook or downplay or minimize or cast aspersions on those who are bringing credible allegation after credible allegation of misconduct and abuse from him. Because what? Because actually, secretly, the dirty little secret is the big idea is to make people anxious and depressed. And if you're not doing that, well, then you're doing it wrong. And then they act, they pretend at being scandalized when they can't keep up the appearance anymore. And they say, well, we had concerns. We had concerns. Chris Rosenborough, Justin Peters, Steve Johnson. Oh yeah, we had concerns for years and years. And we, we talked with him privately about those concerns and how he was being uncharitable. And there were a lot of red flags and yeah, it's for the best. It's unfortunate. It's really for the best. And we hope he gets really good help. And yeah, I agree with Dean Lentini. He's got a YouTube channel. You should check out should definitely check out. He did a video. I just recently came across it, but it was from last summer where he talked about the fall of J.D. Hall video that those three did together. He talks about it and he makes the exact same point that I made. Oh, you talked with J.D. Hall privately. That's great. Why didn't you warn the church? Why didn't you speak out publicly? Why did you keep sharing a platform with him? Why did you keep promoting him? Why did you keep affirming him? Why did you, when the elders and the deacons of his local church came to you asking for help privately, why did you help to cover it up and tell them to take the path of least resistance that would do the least possible damage to his reputation and also conveniently yours as well? Why? If you're not wolves in sheep's clothing, you're at very bare minimum looking a lot like wolves in sheep's clothing, and that should terrify you. Not because you're afraid of me, but because if you have any fear of God, then it doesn't just show when the public finds out, or else we know what your real motives are. When it's cover up, cover up, cover up, cover up, deny, 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 deflect, deflect, deflect. And then you pretend when you can't keep that up anymore, you pretend as though you were really concerned all the while. It turns out that the training materials on biblical counseling admit from the jump that you're going to have a lot of depressed people because you're going to make them depressed if they weren't already. And if you're not, then shame on you. I mean, it's quite the sustainable business model. I mean, I, I must admit it's almost like if you found out <clears throat> that there was a doctor in your town who was poisoning the water all the while when people came to him sick, he just so happened to have the antidote and would be happy to sell it to them, except he's going to keep on poisoning the water supply so that they keep on having to come back for the antidote. And if they object, if anybody catches him poisoning the water supply and says, hey, why are you slipping this into our water on the front end? What's that about? He says, oh, no, this is, this is also the cure. Yeah, but is it? <clears throat> and then the people who start asking more and more questions maybe get told, 
Yeah, but where did you go to medical school? Hmm? Are you a doctor? What's your training? What are your credentials? What gives you the right to blog or to podcast? Who gives you the right? Who, who gave you the right? And, you know, here's what I told years ago. And I got with another cousin. I got into a bit of hot water. Also, go figure, coming out of Masters, coming out of John MacArthur's orbit. Not really coming out of, actually still firmly within. But anyway, I challenged the line of questioning when I was asked, what gives you the right to have a blog where you talk about social and political issues of our day from the Bible or from a Christian worldview? I said, what wouldn't give us the right? And the response I got was, well, you know, back in the day, seminaries, colleges, universities were able to filter out people who might be teaching heresy, might be teaching things that were false or erroneous. They were able to filter those people out. And if they didn't give the stamp of approval, then those people couldn't just go start a church somewhere and start preaching, start teaching, start printing books. But you know, ever since the printing press and the internet, everybody who's got the ability to communicate thinks they should just be able to say whatever they want. And you know what? And, and this is the question I was literally asked by a pastor in my family who went to masters. You know, what's to prevent you from getting really popular and getting 10, a hundred, a thousand times as much of a following as a pastor who goes to college and goes to seminary and is ordained and pastors a little church with a hundred people in it for 10 years, maybe for his entire life. What gives you the right to be heard by more people than that guy? And right then, right there, what the real objection was became exceptionally clear to me because what was really at root was it's not fair. I'll be jealous if you actually just circumvent all of that hard work that I did, kissing rings, kowtowing, using smooth words, profuse are the kisses of an enemy, faithful are the wounds of a friend. It wouldn't be fair if your model of blogging ended up being more successful and getting more credit and reaching more people. It wouldn't be fair. What do you mean fair? What are you actually in this for? Anyways, what is your angle? What is your game? What is your motivation? Anyways, I don't know about you. I'm not making any money doing this. This is not my livelihood. This is what I do because I want to love and serve my God and my neighbor starting with my wife and my children, not ending, not last, but first, because they are my nearest neighbors. I want to love God and love my fellow man because God told me to better and better. And so I'm trying to practice with what I say. But you, you, you make money. This is your income. This is your livelihood. That's what it means for you to be full-time vocational ministry. You spent money. You invested money to get the training from the people that are reputable to be taken seriously when you set yourself up as a pastor, when you're called to be a pastor, as you say, but that really just means accepted. You're accepted to be a pastor of this or that church between a concern for where your next paycheck would come from otherwise, and a concern for whether you get the credit 
whether people know your name, whether people salute you and shake your hand at the conferences and the conventions, that's that's what you're upset about? That maybe I would get more handshakes than you by the end of the game? Really? And, and, and what's just even more deliciously ironic is over the years when I have rebuked that, when I have correctly identified, I think, in the absence of a better explanation, correctly diagnosed what's sick in that, they just don't talk to me anymore. Which is, I mean, if they're going to be like that, then that's for the best. Suits me. <laughs> if you're going to be like that, maybe it's better that we don't talk. Maybe it's better that we don't see each other. It's mutual. But I'll pray for you. And if you ever want to apologize, you will not see me turning you away. But it's wicked. This is wicked. It's a dereliction of duty. It's selfishness. It's hypocrisy. I can't see it any other way. You know, some people get all worked up about Calvinism. I know some very fine Calvinists who are decent people and they love Jesus and they love the people around them. From what I can see, from what I can tell, I'm not a Calvinist though, for the very same reasons that I'm not going to be excessively deferential as I see so many people being towards John MacArthur, because I see all of the above there as being in some measure, a transgression of what Paul says about not being carnal and fleshly. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, he writes, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Is Paul tooting his own horn there a little bit? Patting himself on the back? I don't think so. Not per se. He's saying as much as he needs to for their benefit so that they don't dismiss what he's saying. No more. But he's curbing appropriately what's already building at this early stage in the church in the way of cults of personality around certain of the ministers through whom these early Christians in Corinth believed. They are losing the plot if they're bickering and fighting amongst each other about whether they are of Paul or of Apollos or Calvin or Arminius. And the Calvinist will get all up in arms and the Arminian will get all up in arms and say, oh, no, but it's more than that. It's about who's a heretic and who's not a heretic. Calvinists are heretics. They're a cult. Da, 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 da. Stop. Stop, please. Stop it. Stop, stop, stop. Stop it. Calvinists, just as bad, if not worse. Oh, Arminians, are they even saved? If they were really saved, then they wouldn't be trying to get glory for themselves and assume that they even have the ability to choose to believe that I'm not even sure they're even Christians if they don't 
believe in the doctrines of grace like I do. And, uh, you know, if they were really, if they were really Christians, then they would definitely agree with me. And so I know that they're not even Christians. So now I don't have to take anything that they would say seriously. I'm not even going to regard them as brothers. And where is our Paul? Where is our Apostle Paul to tell us, you guys are acting like babies. You are being infants right now. Okay? You're being infants. Stop it. It's wicked. Repent. Don't treat each other that way. Don't act that way. That's not what we're called to. That's not what God calls us to. Do you really love God? Then don't treat each other this way. Do you really love God? Then don't think and talk this way and reason this way. It's not correct. Before we adjourn this episode, I'll talk just briefly about a couple of news items. One, an article by Ben Zeisloft over the Daily Wire. They should be willing to drink it. EPA administrator says water is safe after Ohio train crash. J.D. Vance invites him to take a sip. J.D. Vance, senator from Ohio, challenged EPA administrator Michael Regan to drink a glass of tap water in East Palestine, Ohio, after the agency claimed the water supply was safe despite the small town's recent Norfolk Southern train derailment and toxic chemical disaster. That's the real test, huh? That's the <laughs> that's the real test is how do you respond when you're encouraged to drink that water? Is it really clean water? It might look clean at first blush, but you tested it, right? What were the, can we see the test results? What, what were the test results? How are those looking? No, no, you don't want to drink it? Huh, interesting. Okay, so maybe we don't believe you. Maybe we don't trust you, right? Another example, another current events item indicative of what I think is going on here. Breaking news from the Wall Street Journal just 10 minutes ago. The five former Memphis police officers charged with killing Tyre Nichols have pleaded not guilty to second-degree murder. Not guilty to second-degree murder. Did I miss something that kind of looked like they were all kicking and punching him until he died? Did, did, I, did anybody else see that video differently? In, in what way do you see yourself as not guilty of his wrongful death, of his murder? In, in what way exactly? Explain that to me. And, and you might have to talk slowly because I'm, I'm having a hard time keeping up at the moment. Oh, is, is it because you're police officers? Is that what it is? You're, you're police officers and so therefore it couldn't be murder? Is that the implication? Is that the insinuation here? Hmm. I mean, by all means, let's let due process run its course. Let's let these men speak for themselves. But it strains credulity as they say, it was abuse of power. And the only antidote for these kinds of abuse of power scenarios where people lie and say things are safe that are not safe or abuse their power and then say, oh no, that was appropriate. Yeah, that's appropriate because I'm in authority. So therefore I can't abuse my authority or my power somehow or other. But if you did it, right, if you weren't a police officer and you did it, it would be against the law. But it's not a, it's not, <laughs> please understand, it's not a evil, wicked, criminal thing for us to do it because we are the law, right? It can happen inside the church too. It can happen outside the church. But I think 
in our society, in Western civilization, in Christian civilization, ostensibly, whatever's left of it these days, the rot starts in the church, or at least we should act like it does, because we have to start with what we can actually do something about. We have to start with the cleanup in our own town. If you've got somebody who's abusing their authority, you don't just say, oh, but they have authority, so they can't possibly be abusing it, right? There's no denying that they have authority, and we're supposed to submit to authorities. Mm-mm-mm. If they're telling you to drink unsafe drinking water in East Palestine, or East Palestine, because apparently we just get to change the definition of or pronunciation of words. <laughs> Like that. When we name an American town after some place or person in the old world, we can just pronounce their name however we like. But I would say the EPA and the drinking water business in East Palestine, Ohio, is analogous to the Anglican Church affirming homosexuality. It's not safe to drink. Drink bottled water. Drink bottled water. That, that would be better. I would say that the whole police officers being charged with second-degree murder in the case of the death of Tyre Nichols pleading not guilty, I would say that that is analogous to the kind of abuse inherent to the upstream teaching that your sermons should depress the people in your congregation. Therefore, you will have no shortage. You should have no shortage of depressed people coming to you for biblical counseling. I would say these these things are analogous too. And both alike need to be confronted. I think J.D. Vance, his engagement on this makes him my hero. How about you drink it? He actually went to East Palestine, by the way. This is just great. This is great. We need more of this. We, we really do. This is public service. Another article by Ben Zeisloft. This is disgusting, J.D. Vance. Scrapes creek bed with a stick after train crash. Oily substance emerges in viral video. He's a senator, by the way. He's going himself. Some others have taken video and posted it online, but it's different when it's a U.S. senator going and saying, listen, these are my constituents. These are my people. This is my responsibility. This is my state that I represent. I was voted to represent This is unacceptable. I'm going to play a short clip of audio from that video that is making the rounds, highlighted in Ben Zeisloff's reporting for the Daily Wire. Take a listen. Hey guys, so I'm here at Leslie Run, and there's dead worms and dead fish all throughout this water. Something I just discovered is that if you scrape the creek bed, it's like chemical is coming out of the ground. Can can you you come here? And, and let me just show this to people. I don't know if you're going to see this on the camera, but watch this. Just see that chemical pop out of the creek. This is disgusting. And the fact that we have not cleaned up the, the, the train crash, the fact that these chemicals are still seeping in the ground is an insult to the people who live in East Palestine. Do not forget these people. We've got to keep applying pressure. That's how we're going to fix this problem. Thank you. Open thy mouth for the dumb. Proverbs 31, 8 says, In the cause of all such as are left desolate, open thy mouth, judge righteously, and minister judgment to the poor and needy. You want to talk about a necessary 
Proverbs 31 ministries, not just the virtues of noble woman, but the words of King Lemuel, which his mother taught him, open your mouth for those whose rights are being trampled on and taken away. For those who can't speak for themselves, speak up. For those who are being abused and neglected, told things that are not true or told half-truths to a bad end in a exploitative way. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I gotta run, as always. Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.